0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode number 77 of the 50 Years Ago in Hockey Podcast. Each week right here on the Hockey Podcast Network, we take a trip down memory lane back in time and bring you all the hockey news from 50 years ago exactly as it was reported at the time. This week we are in April 12th to 18th. 1971. You know basketball season won't be around forever so get in on all the action now with DraftKings the leader in one day fantasy sports. DraftKings is giving new players a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. Claim your free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes when using code THPN during sign up. Playing daily uh, fantasy basketball is quite simple. Just pick your lineup, stay under the salary cap, and see how your team stacks up against the competition. Feel the sweat like never before. Every dunk, every steal, assist means so much more with a DraftKings Daily Fantasy lineup. And baseball fans, you may have missed out on season-long fantasy, so now's the time to get in on all the daily fantasy action where DraftKings has even more ways to make it rain. With DraftKings, payday comes every day for players, so what are you waiting for? Head to the app right now. Download the DraftKings app now and use code THPN during sign-up. This week, DraftKings is putting you in the action with a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. That's code THPN, and you can get a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes only at DraftKings. There's a minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply, and see DraftKings.com for details and of course along with DraftKings don't forget our other sponsors newspapers.com provides us with all the access to the historical files upon which we base our broadcasts and the Breakwall Brewing Company located in beautiful downtown Port Coburn Ontario producers of some of the finest craft beers in all of Canada and uh, they're still open for takeout at this time and when things clear up I'd love to meet all our listeners at the Breakwall. Uh, there's also another podcast I'd like to mention right now, and it's the Hockey Time Machine. Uh, th- this is a, a project that grew out of our uh, our monthly hockey alumni uh, hockey luncheons we had in Toronto, and each week they tackle a different subject in sort of a Zoom session. Uh, it's not done on Zoom, but it's uh, it's a very interesting uh, format. And uh, if you go on Facebook and, and search Hockey Time Machine or search Hockey Time Machine on YouTube, you can see exactly what they do. It's really worth your time to watch. So this week in 1971, we're fully into the Stanley Cup tournament, and we're going to get it all, all the stuff we have for you this week, because really, there's almost too much for one episode here, but we're going to try and get it all in. Uh, at this point in time, uh, one of the four quarterfinal series had been decided, with the Blackhawks easily disposing of a completely overmatched Philadelphia Flyers team in four straight games. So what we're going to do this week is take a look at the three remaining sets, all of which would be decided by the end of this week. The games were to resume on three fronts on Tuesday evening, so with a brief hiatus in place, uh, there was a little bit of hockey news being reported outside of the actual games being played. Some postseason awards began to... be announced uh the hockey news named their national hockey league coach of the year and he was johnny mcclellan of the toronto maple leafs the leafs as you remember in the 70 71 season started out terribly but the team turned around and actually made the playoffs and for a while contended for third place in that tough eastern division Uh, mcclellan was seen as a main architect of the leafs change in style and of their uh, return to fundamentals and solid team play and that's what got them into the playoffs and johnny mcclellan chosen as coach of the year there was also a little bit of gamesmanship between the leafs and the rangers we'll tell you about their series but if you remember in game two at madison square garden on april 8th i believe it was Uh, in a large brawl in fact a brawl filled third period uh, during the one major skirmish rangers left winger vic hadfield somehow got hold of the mask of leaf goalie bernie pront and he chucked it directly into the gallery at madison square garden and of course it was never seen again well harold ballard the leaf's executive vice president i guess is what he called himself in those days he informed the rangers he would be sending them a bill for 150 dollars Which of course would cover the cost of new facial protection for Mr. Perron Well over the weekend Ballard received a bill from Bill Jennings The president of the New York Rangers for $175 It's for one Vic Hadfield model hockey glove Manufactured and specially sewn according to the account Located in North Battleford, Saskatchewan Now, this is just a little bit of game playing. If you, if you know anything about the Rangers executives, North Battleford, Saskatchewan is the home of Rangers general manager, Emil Francis. You may have heard about this, uh, incident that took place the Sunday before this week came and this was in a Western Hockey League playoff game in San Diego between the San Diego Gulls and the Portland Buckaroos. Portland employs a rather robust defenseman by the name of Connie Madigan and Madigan was incensed over calls by referee Dave Newell. So Connie took it upon himself to approach Newell and he punched him directly in the face and knocked them out cold, to the extent that Dave was actually unconscious for at least four minutes on the ice before the San Diego trainer revived him with some smelling salts. Here's how the incident was described by San Diego winger Earl Heiskelah. He said Madigan was cussing at the referee and Newell put up with it for about a minute, maybe a minute and a half. Then he turned and he told Madigan he was being charged with a misconduct penalty with less than ten minutes remaining in the game. That meant Madigan was gone for the night so Madigan faced Newell and according to coach Jack Evans of the Gauls he said he hit him with a hell of a punch Newell went down in a heap uh Madigan finally with the was escorted off by the linesman and he's probably going to be gone from organized hockey for quite a while and there was some awful news out of Toronto this weekend Although he was wearing a helmet A 16-year-old boy was killed by a puck Which struck him in the side of his head While he was warming up for a casual game At Lambden Mills Arena in Toronto Claudio Romanin of Exeter Street in Toronto Collapsed on the ice when the puck hit the side of his head He was wearing a Cooper Model SK-10 helmet I had one of those helmets as well. Uh, They were uh, sold at Canadian Tire Eatons, all those different stores. And they didn't afford much protection, especially the SK-10 model, which was basically the bottom of the line there. Uh, There will be inquest into this. There will be a lot of looking into it. And in fact, within days, uh, the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association began testing helmets to see just how much uh, protection these... uh, helmets afforded young hockey players. So the games began once again in earnest on Tuesday evening in Boston, New York, and St. Louis. The Bruins found themselves in what was really an uncomfortable position of being tied at two games apiece with Canadians, a circumstance that was totally unforeseen before this series began. The main reason for the stalemate at this time was the play of rookie goalie Ken Dryden, one year removed from a stint with Canada's national team and only two years out of Cornell University. And just to make the whole situation even more unlikely... Dryden was simply a part-time player with the American Hockey League Montreal Voyageurs this season as he attended McGill University during the week working on his law degree and basically played for the the Voyageurs on weekends. This kid had just six games of National Hockey League experience all during the last couple of weeks of the season when he was called up by the Habs so even though the series was tied at two, the Bruins cocky as ever weren't worried according to Derek Sanderson Derek was asked how the uh, Bruins felt going into game five and he said we're all right now we're loose before Sunday we had an uptight looseness if you know what I mean everyone went around saying I'm loose I'm loose but they were just saying that it showed they really weren't loose Derek says now they're ready to put this thing away Well, Derek was proven to be correct in the crucial Game 5, and that's usually the one that tells the tale in a series so often. Uh, And it appeared that the roof had finally uh, caved in on young Dryden, at least if you just looked at the score Wednesday morning when you picked up your paper. The Bruins cruised to a 7-3 demolishment of Montreal at the Garden. but anybody who was at the game knew it was not the rookie Dryden's fault. Dryden faced... 56 Boston shots and he did well to keep the goals against figure in single digits most uh, writers and other observers felt that this was the the bursting of the dam so to speak and that the Bruins had finally unleashed their awesome awesome firepower and this series would be wrapped up in the sixth game at Montreal Thursday evening certainly uh, a team that was so utterly and thoroughly dominated couldn't come back and force a seventh could they even the unflappable dryden seemed to be facing up to the inevitable when he spoke to frank Orr, who was covering the series for the toronto star ken told frank i'm exhausted to make it even worse the arena was very very hot and the ice was bad ken's not making excuses here by the way if you've ever played a game in the spring in a hot stuffy rink for me uh the odd, and, uh, the odd in Buffalo was the worst. I played there one spring and that was not before a rink filled with fans. And I couldn't believe how debilitating it was to play under those conditions, rough ice. Uh, I, I felt I couldn't hardly breathe playing in that. Uh, now, When you add to that that you're facing about 220 shots from the Bruins over the course of a week, you can understand why Ken Dryden felt a little fatigued. So Frank Orr and so many others felt that the Canadians uh, had no other choice but to come back with the veteran Rogichem Vashon for Game 6. Everybody figured that. And Game 6 was considered to be a foregone conclusion. And uh, Boston's Eddie Westfall. Uh, spoke to tom fitzgerald of the boston globe and here's what he said about it eddie said the thing to do is complete these series as early as possible it would have been wonderful to do it in four straight it didn't work out that way though but six games will be all right there's no sense risking a seventh game even though it's always nice to win in front of your own fans if you have that luxury the Bruins, of course, were discussing ways to beat Rogie Vachon, who would certainly be in goal for Montreal in the six games. They felt it was unconceivable that Montreal would go with the rookie one more time. But Al McNeil, the coach of the Canadiens, would not reveal his starting goalie when asked on the day between games. So Game 6, Thursday night at the Forum, fulfilled at least one of a series of predictions that were all about the same. It was a romp. It was a blowout by the winners. The winners won by five goals. But the crazy part was it was not Boston that won this game. The Canadians suddenly found their legs. They found their confidence. They found their shooting eyes. And they romped to an 8-3 score over what by the end was a totally demoralized Boston Bruins team. Henry Richard summed it up perfectly with this assessment of the one-sided contest. Henry said, we played the game like it should be played. Everybody was skating and everybody was checking. The defense was skating and moving the puck up out of our zone and we never let up. The pocket rocket, by the way, in this game played a major role as he scored two goals. But here is what's really uh remarkable about that feat. He was played right wing, filling in for the injured Phil Roberto, and the pocket said after the game that he had not played right wing or he had not scored a goal playing right wing in sixteen years. He played right wing a bit when he uh, first came up in the NHL but he hadn't played anywhere near regularly there since then. And on this night, 16 years later, he scored a pair to help the Habs to the win. Of course, maybe the Bruins were just in shock right from the beginning when they saw Lanky Dryden come out and take his position in front of the Montreal goal instead of Vashon. But this night was different the phenom Dryden didn't have to put on an all-world performance in order for Montreal to prevail. He actually got supreme support from his mates on this night in the form of eight goals and a 43 to 32 shots on goal advantage and that's something Habs hadn't been able to do against the Bruins throughout this series. We turn once again to the words of Frank Orr, who provides us with his assessment of how this game turned out. Frank wrote, haul out those musty old words that perhaps are corny when used in 1971. Pride, tradition, never say die, ability to produce under pressure, and apply them all to Montreal Canadians. As they did so often in their past glory years of Stanley Cups, the Canadians hacked their way out of a tight corner at the forum and now have a shot at the biggest upset in many National Hockey League seasons. So it would all be decided on a Sunday afternoon and a nationally televised in the U.S. that is it'll be televised across Canada that goes without saying this game would come from the Boston Garden and would be on the CBS television network once again Frank Orr kind of sets the scene for us and he gives us some words about the coaching of Al McNeil uh, which might be diametrically opposed to what we would hear later on in the playoffs. Frank said that the Montreal Canadiens really don't have a great deal to lose in Boston on Sunday afternoon. All the Canadians might blow the seventh game of the quarterfinal to the Boston Bruins, but merely being in a seventh game is an accomplishment of considerable magnitude for the rebuilding team and its rookie coach, Al McNeil. By winning three games from powerhouse Bruins following a rather inconsistent season, Canadians regained the respectability they abandoned with last season's playoff miss and this year's midterm coaching change when McNeil replaced Claude Ruel. McNeil's frequent lineup juggles were criticized by Montreal fans and press during the season mainly because the Canadians were staggering most of the way. Fortunately for McNeil results dictate reaction and his latest line shuffles produced Thursday's 8-3 Montreal victory and earned him genius accolades from the same folks who called him a chump on earlier occasions. So Sunday afternoon arrived, a packed, sweaty, Boston Garden had an atmosphere of both anticipation and dread as the climax of one of the most memorable playoff series in many years was about to unfold. We'll let this highlight package with the voice of the legendary Dan Kelly and a few others tell the story. <laughs> Back the period. Pete Mahavly, Hard they score. are going to have to change entirely. They look like a tired team. They have lost their fire and spark, and certainly the kind of aggressiveness that won them so many games this year. Checked by Mahavlick to Lemaire. Lemaire tried to flip it in front. Here's Bromley at the point, moving in. The shot! He scores! Bromley Back to Orr. He's shot by Mahavlick. They head to LaMair. Moving in. He scores! Frank Mahalic set up by LeMair. the Dryden, a million saves. If you had to look at any one man this afternoon, it's got to be Ken Dryden, who's been playing a magnificent net. He simply got them intimidated. No matter what they've done this afternoon, this big guy at 6'4", well over 200 pounds, has had the nets covered up. And the Bruins, the defending Stanley Cup champions, are out of it. And they line up to congratulate the victorious Montreal Canadiens. I know you're going to have plenty of time to think about it, and people are going to remind you, but you seem to be flat. Everybody seemed to be flat, particularly today, when they thought they'd come out banging. I wish I knew the answer, Don. And uh, whatever it was, we would have tried to correct it earlier, but uh, we just didn't play hockey, we didn't skate. Uh, I know we're going to get the, the razzmatazz about being too happy with the season that's gone by, but we're... Professional athletes, and in no damn way that uh, we were being satisfied with the season. There was one guy that stands out in my mind as the reason for the Bruins losing the first round of the playoffs. It has to be Ken Dryden. So that was it. The unthinkable had happened. The mighty Bruins. Had been dismissed by the upstart Canadians in what was probably one of the greatest hockey upsets of all time. Dick Beddoes in the Toronto Globe and Mail on Monday described how many Canadians felt when the Bruins went down right on the American national television. And if you ever watch Dick's short lived TV show on CHCH CH and Hamilton, you can. Really, just hear his voice in these comments as he said, Okay, Mr. Bandmaster, strike up the maple leaf rag or alouette. Hit a few bars of Indian Love Call or Frère Jacques. Tell the Mounties to go get their smoky and the Bear hats cleaned and blocked. Get the moose off the main drag in Tobacco so we can have a parade. Get out the snowshoes and the huskies and mush on down to the trading post for a pail of rot gut to toast Montreal Canadians cancel the bond spiel just for tonight put bobby orr's picture back in the overset hey clarence campbell hang a light on the north pole will you be a canada canada firster ring up the fleur-de-lis beside the maple leaf flag let's keep the canadians and confederation and waffle anybody who deems otherwise even the ndp As for the Bruins at the game's conclusion, they sat there on their bench basically stunned. Some were physically ill at the thought of having lost. Some sat there and quietly wept. But they all knew they'd been on the wrong side of history and on the wrong side of one of hockey's ever greatest series. Derek Sanderson summed up how he felt once again for the great Frank Orr. Derek said, they call this a game of inches, don't they? Well, we proved it today. We were missing on everything, shots, passes, and checks by a very thin margin. Derek went on to describe the great goaltending of Ken Dryden and uh, the underrated efforts of Henry Richard and Yvonne Cornway, whom he described as much stronger and more aggressive than he used to be. He summed up his uh, statement by saying, Montreal clutched and grabbed beautifully so the deed was done the Bruins were dead and Canadians would live to see at least one more playoff series but who are they going to play well let's look at the other two series to get the answer to that well the New York Rangers and Toronto Maple Leafs were tied at two games apiece just like the Bruins and Canadians were but this uh stalemate was not considered to be as much as a surprise as the Montreal-Boston series after four games. Many felt Toronto's goalkeeping would actually allow the Leafs to prevail in the series or at least give the resurgent Toronto's a chance to uh, uh, maybe pull off an upset and to this point Bernie Perrant's fine work between the pipes for Toronto had the Leafs even with the Rangers in the fifth game at Madison Square Garden would as fifth games are wont to be would be crucial rangers general manager coach emil francis felt his team was in pretty good shape despite not being ahead by a game or two Emil said he had four good reasons to feel good about his team. Those reasons were the goalkeeping of Eddie Jackman in Sunday night's 4-2 win that tied the series up. Uh, He was happy about the perk up of forward Dave Ballone who broke a 12 game goal famine with a goal in each of the two games in Toronto. He believed that the revive effectiveness of his three sets of defensive pairings was crucial to the Rangers being able to win. And Emil was extremely happy with the work of his penalty killers. And because of those four factors, Francis figured his team was in very good shape. And Emil was not wrong. Now, now before the fifth game even began that day, the two teams we're making big news off the ice. National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell fined the two teams a total, a record total, of nearly $17,000, 16950 to be exact, for the Brawls thus far in the series. Included in these totals of fines were... fines levied against each of the two teams as warnings to the owners that all gratuitous violence must stop and must stop right now. Well, Toronto President Stafford Smythe simply said he wasn't going to pay the fine. Try and make me were his words. Uh, And as far as he was concerned, uh, Clarence Campbell could go to hell. He said fines won't stop the fighting nothing like this will stop the fighting if they want to stop this kind of thing they're going to have to enforce the rules the right way and Smythe just said I'm not paying the fine there would of course be more to this story in the coming days but that was how it was left as game five began and the game itself was a close tight checking affair but it really didn't start out that way Ted Irvin who is the father of present-day wrestler Chris Jericho, for those of you who might not know that, opened the scoring just 34 seconds into the contest after the opening faceoff. And it looked at that point like this might be one of those six to five run and gun games. But the Leafs didn't panic. The Rangers didn't panic. Both coaches showed exactly how much uh influence they have on their team as each team settled into the close tight checking uh mode that the playoff games so often follow and that's the way it went what happened once was uh, this was just a case of one team being better than the other the kitty bar of the door hockey kept the score close but not close enough and the rangers prevailed by a score of 3 to 1 by scoring a goal in each of the three periods it actually seemed like the Leafs were asleep to the first 40 minutes but they awakened in that final frame and they did make a game of it after Bob Nevin had given the Rangers a 3-0 lead at 625 of the final frame Toronto suddenly began throwing everything but the kitchen sink at the Rangers netminder Eddie Jackman but Eddie gave up just one goal that to Leafs defenseman Jim McKinney and that was in the period's 14th minute Toronto outshot the Rangers by 15-4 to in the final 20 minutes but it was Joachim who held the fort and gave the Rangers that crucial win and probably the deciding game of the series. For the most part in this game quite honestly Toronto looked like a weary hockey club and and actually they were lucky to be as close as they were by the third period and that was thanks only to some miraculous work at times by goalie Bernie Perrant in the Leaf Nets that of course sets up game six which would be back at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto coach Johnny McClellan told anybody who'd listened that his game six man between the pipes was going to be the great veteran Jacques Plante John was quick to assure reporters that this was in no way a slight or a comment on the work of Bernie Perron at all. Bernie had been nothing short of sensational during this series, but what McClellan was doing, he hoped was going with a rested fresher man and albeit one in his early 40s. The Leaf mentor was also hoping that those eons of playoff experience compiled by Jacques over his Hall of Fame career could somehow lift the Leafs past New York and forth a seventh and deciding game. Well, Game 6 was uh, another typical Stanley Cup playoff contest as they were played in the 60s and 70s. And it was a game in which each team paid special attention to defense and the results were completely indicative of that. The score was tied after regulation time had expired at only 1-1 to and this game would have to be settled in sudden death. Overtime and it was an old Maple Leaf now with the Rangers who did his former team in. The Ranger captain Bob Nevin had scored earlier in the game to give the Rangers uh, their only goal in regulation time. Bob, the Rangers captain, had been acquired from Toronto in 1964 in one of the biggest trades up to that time in Maple Leaf history where Ranger superstar Andy Bathgate and another fine scorer Don McKinney had gone to the Maple Leafs in exchange for Nevin, Dick Duff, Arnie Brown, Rod Sealing and a young fella by the name of Bill Collins. There were actually about six other players included in various iterations of this swap at the minor level that a lot of people don't even know about up. Uh, and and one of these days we'll get into a bunch of trades and all the machinations that took place in that uh, landmark 1964 deal but anyway bob came to the rangers in 1964 and shortly thereafter became their captain the overtime session lasted exactly nine minutes and seven seconds Nevin got the puck and he broke in over the Maple Leaf blue line with Walter Kachuk on a two-on-one and Leafs veteran defenseman Bobby Bond was the only man back for the Leafs. Now Bond played this two-on-one break in textbook fashion exactly as they draw it up on the blackboards in the dressing room and show you how to do it in practice Bond stayed in the middle taking the passing play away from Nevin but Nevin didn't act like he saw that and he kept looking at Kachuk as if he was going to try and float a pass over to the Ranger center who was streaking in at Jacques Plon in the Maple Leaf goal but at the last minute Bond with it, or Nevin with his head up saw an opening and fired a low wrist shot barely off the ice past plant and into the far corner of the goal and the issue was decided once and for all the rangers had won the series that goal for bob nevin by the way was uh, a, a quite significant goal for bob personally it was his fifth of this playoff series and that seemed that he, we would now shed the rather unfair reputation hung on him by the fickle New York fans that he's not a playoff performer. Bob Nevin was a star, a true star and a true leader in this series another thing for Bob that made it very personal was of course the fact that he scored against the the only team he had known since he was a young boy the Maple Leafs growing up in Toronto and of course playing for the Maple Leafs Bob really uh, felt good that he was able to just give a little kick back to the team that traded him away so many years earlier The New York Rangers were full value for this series when They were the superior team and were superior by a good margin. Toronto's goalkeeping, as good as it was, couldn't lift them to what some thought might be an upset series victory. But Bernie Perrant and Jacques Plante, and especially Perrant, acquitted themselves amazingly well. And they made these six games look a lot closer than they actually were. So now we get to the other series that was completed this week and that was between the St. Louis Blues and the Minnesota North Stars returning to St. Louis tied at two games apiece just like the other two active series it seemed even more than in the other series that the fifth game in the in this set would probably be the one that would be more crucial than the other two and of course it was going into game five it had become abundantly clear that this was not the same st louis crew that represented the western division in the stanley cup finals in each of that division's first three seasons even general manager and once again coach scotty bowman didn't communicate any confidence... When he spoke with reporters about his team chances after losing game four, Scotty said, we still have home ice advantage for the fifth game and that's some consolation. Some consolation, that's hardly the words of a man convinced the team can prevail as it had in the past. Scotty told Wally Post of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch that there wasn't a lot to choose between the two clubs. He said, it's imperative we win at home and keep the edge. The pressure was on us in the first game and even more so in the second. We can't afford to make any mistakes in this game, Scotty being maybe a little prophetic with those words. Well, as it turned out, game five was a contest. The Blues should have won, but they didn't. They outshot the North Stars by a margin of 36 to 22, including 16 to 9 in the middle stanza. But they came up short on the scoreboard as the North Stars eked out a 4-3 win right in St. Louis before all of those nearly 18,000 rabid fans. It was Lou Nanny who provided the game winner with his first career playoff goal with less than four minutes remaining in regulation time. The game had been a seesaw battle with the Blues breaking in front early in the opening period only to see the North Stars battle back and they took the lead as the first 20 minutes came to a close. St. Louis tied it up early in the second but Jude Druin with his second of the night the fine North Stars rookie put the visitors up again by one but gamely the Bruins kept the pressure on the North Stars G- netminder Gump Worsley until they finally tied it at 3-3 just before the game's halfway mark. It stayed that way until Nanny deposited the rebound from a Murray Oliver shot behind of Blues goalie Glenn Hall to thrust the Stars into a lead which they would not relinquish. The Blues in this game were beaten by Minnesota as Minnesota employed the Blues favorite tactics. The Stars won on desire and hustle which is usually the Blues trademark. Even Nanny remarked on that. Lou said after the game, we tried to play the kind of game that St. Louis usually usually does. we had been telling ourselves that all season. Play like St. Louis does. Check close and wait for the breaks. That's what they did, and that's what they got. So that took us to Game 6 Thursday evening at the Met Center in Bloomington, Minnesota, which, as many of you will know, is located smack dab in the middle between the twin cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. The most interesting comment on the state of affairs going into that sixth game came from the North Stars' general manager, Ren Blair, in an uncharacteristically... Uh, honest moment completely devoid of anything but logic or at least that's what we all thought Wren said if you disregard the money involved it really doesn't make much different which team wins the one that survives has to play Boston probably the best hockey team ever assembled it's not too hard to pick the outcome of that series once again Scotty Bowman was asked to comment on his team's chances of prolonging this and once again Scotty didn't sound like a man convinced he's got a winner on his hands Scotty said if our best isn't good enough we don't deserve to win it's sudden death for us now this is our 12th meeting with Minnesota this season and all the games have been close especially in the playoffs we haven't played badly so far but we haven't played that well either Well we know what happened as history tells us the Blues were not successful in this game. It began as a a kind of a a couple of boxers trying to feel themselves out even though they'd been playing as we said 11 times previously this season. The teams were tentative to start this game. Old hand Frank St. Marseille put the Blues ahead at 445 of the second period and it looked like maybe uh, St. Louis's experience would finally prevail but then at the 1034 mark Everything changed. Suddenly, the North Stars scored three times within four minutes of each other. Ted Hampson, Lou Nanny, and Bobby Russo scored the goals in that second period. That gave Minnesota a 3-1 lead. They went on to win the game 5-2. And for the first time in their history, the St. Louis Blues had been eliminated from a playoff series before the finals the unthinkable had actually happened at least as far as blues fans were concerned their team would not be in the stanley cup finals but then again as ren blair put it earlier winning this series wasn't a ticket to the finals it was just winning the chance to be eliminated by the bruins but was it really that history tells us that really didn't uh turn out that way of course, we'd want to know Scotty Bowman's reaction uh, to losing for the first time after being in three straight Stanley Cup finals. And uh, Scotty's comment was maybe a little curious. Scotty said the North Stars checked a lot better in this series, and that's why they did so well. They're in a good frame of mind, and maybe they can do better than we did. When you lose three championship series in a row, though, it takes a lot out of your club. Maybe Scotty's saying that the Blues' heart just wasn't in it. And if that was the case, that's on the coach. Gump Worsley was, again, the star for the uh, North Stars. He he uh, played like his old self. Gump is uh, near the nearing the end of a Hall of Fame career, and he showed his experience and his guts and determination, turning the Blues back time and again. He made some big saves, especially in the final period and uh, along with the goaltending of Caesar Maniego earlier in the series, that really turned out to be the difference. The veteran Glenn Hall wasn't bad for the Blues when he played. Uh, they turned to Ernie Wakely in this final game, and Ernie, a fine goaltender who'd been around in the minors for a long time before he finally got his regular NHL chance with the Blues, just wasn't up to the task on this night so the semi-final matchups had now been set and even though we we had been told this repeatedly there still seemed to be some confusion around the hockey world uh, as uh, people tried to figure out who was going to play whom and that was because the playoff uh, format had been changed in this season after the first round there would be a crossover between the divisions What that meant was that the winner of Series A, which was Montreal, they would take on the winner of Series D, who were, of course, the North Stars. That left the Blackhawks to play the New York Rangers in the other semifinal series, and that promised to be a real bar burner. We will have all the results of those early games in those two series in next week's show. There was one other piece of news that came across the wire services in this week 50 years ago, and it was a sad note. Uh, we all knew it was coming. We didn't want it to ever arrive. And uh, it was when the Pittsburgh Penguins announced the passing of, of their former player, Michel Um uh, He became, in his brief uh, tenure in the NHL, I saw a few Pittsburgh games when I could, Uh, He became a a favorite of mine just in his attitude and the way he played and uh, how unexpected it was for him to achieve almost instant stardom. Roy McHugh, the sports editor of the Pittsburgh Press, penned this tribute to Michelle and we'd like to leave it with you uh, right now. It can't be acquired. They either have it or they don't. The quality that sets apart the exciting performer. By one definition, it's chemistry. Exactly the right mixture of talent, style, and competitive spirit. Quoting the same authority, some players make it strictly because of their competence. And then there's the player who is both competent and competitive, but he has a little something extra. He has style. He does what he does with a special flair, a special eclat. He is the type of guy who draws standing-room-only crowds because they know he will make things hum. Michel Briere was such an athlete. Red Kelly first saw Briere at the Penguins training camp in September of 1969. He was showing me moves you can't put into a hockey player, said, said the coach. Friere skated easily. He skimmed across the ice like a water bug, not with great speed, but with a phantom elusiveness, deftly avoiding body checks, probing and questing for the puck. His shot was quick rather than powerful, coming invariably when the goalkeeper least expected it proceeded as likely as not by a faint by a dip of the shoulder. Red Kelly said when he picked up that puck you knew things could happen. You felt he could take it all the way down that the puck would end up in the other guy's net. The feeling was a reaction to the chemistry of Briere, to the premise he communicated, for in his only year with the Penguins, he scored just 12 goals. Yet the spectators sensed his possibilities. They believed he would make things hum. Part of his appeal was the way he looked slight and dark. With the flared nostrils on the ice, Briere called to mind a fugitive fleeing from hunters. While he lay unconscious in a Montreal hospital last summer, his teammate Jean Pronovost said he looked like a kid, he looked like a little boy, and he was out there doing great things. At the start of his rookie season, Red Kelly tried to protect Briere, keep him out of matchups with stronger, more experienced centers. On faceoffs, it seemed that Montreal Jean Beliveau beat him to the draw every single time that was at the start of the season by the end of the year Briere was beating Beliveau getting his stick on the puck before it hit the ice the heavies in the league as they are wont to do took him for a pipsqueak and they were impatient to lean on Briere they would chase him right out of the rink if they could they told themselves with a smirk but when the moment came to lean, they'd be leaning quite often against nothing. Briere would have somehow slithered away once again. In Philadelphia one night, two Flyers took a run at Michal, they collided head-on, and they knocked each other out. Scotty Bowman, the coach of the St. Louis Blues, made it a point last year during the Stanley Cup playoffs to harass Briere with Noel Picard and Bob Plager two of his burliest meanest hombres from Kelly no countermeasures proceeded there he is there's my little baby Kelly said a common sight during the playoff series was Kelly's little baby skating toward the goal while the St. Louis bad boys sprawled on the ice in his wake if they looked at the puck he'd be gone said Kelly he was slippery He could shift and make movements, but all the time he was doing this, he was still skating, keeping his feet moving. A lot of guys, when they shift, they're not going anywhere. Mike kept on skating, kept his feet moving at the same rate of speed. That would be a trait seen in many superstars over the years, right up to the present day in 2021. Now, Roy McHugh writes, Michelle is dead at 21. On trips to Montreal last season, Kelly would visit Briere. It made you feel kind of bad, Red said. You'd walk in, you'd sit down, you'd take hold of his hand. He'd turn his head toward you and his eyes would open, but just staring. He couldn't talk. I was always optimistic, but the last time I saw him, and Red's voice trailed away after saying that. Michel Briere had been only clinically alive since the night 11 months ago when his burnt orange sports car missed a curve on a road in Upper Quebec. That life departed this week. A particular magic blend of talent, style, and competitive spirit is gone forever. So that is our show this week, boys and girls. An eventful week, uh, but some clarity lent to the Stanley Cup playoffs and what did we learn? Well we learned one thing for sure there's a reason they play the games on the ice and not on paper or the Montreal Canadiens wouldn't be going to the next round and the Boston Bruins would be probably making their way toward the Stanley Cup final. We learned or rather we had knowledge reaffirmed once again that goalkeeping is often the most important factor in a Stanley Cup playoff hockey. Ken Dryden taught us that in the series against the Bruins, and Gump Worsley certainly shut the door on the Blues. And we learned of the passing of Michel Briere, a fighter according to all who knew him, right to the very end. Well, next week's show, we'll get right back to the Stanley Cup playoffs as uh with the semifinals get underway with the Canadians playing the North Stars and what should be a barn burner of a series. The Blackhawks will face the Rangers. Uh, we're going to hear a little bit as well about the mess that is the Pittsburgh Penguins front office Uh hate to see Pittsburgh in the news for these negative things but that's how that franchise uh, things were going for them 50 years ago and we're also going to uh, give a little bit of some of the post-mortem examinations conducted by various writers on the Boston Bruins after they uh, slid to a rather untimely death against the Canadians. All next week a pretty busy week we have lined up for you. The Fifty Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. I can't thank Andy enough for everything he does to put this thing together every week. Andy's a true media professional. He is in the business of putting podcasts together. And if you're interested in something like this, get a hold of me, and I'll hook you guys up. Our intro and exit music comes to us from the very popular Juno nominated Toronto indie rock group the rural Alberta Advantage other music uh, effects and uh, special effects they're done by Andy Cole as well some of the music you hear in the background Andy actually uh, crafts that himself our research comes from files found by all the fine publications at newspapers.com and we also get them from the Toronto Star and the Toronto Globe and Mail you can find us on Twitter at Ad Hockey 50 Years, on Facebook under the 50 Years Ago in hockey banner. We have a WordPress site at hockey50yearsago.com, and you can download us wherever your favorite hockey podcasts are found, and of course, listen to us on the Hockey Podcast Network. Join us again next time as we cover the 1971 Stanley Cup playoffs, and on that note, we will see you again soon. When the ice breaks-